Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Tony, for reading for us this morning. We're continuing walking through this opening 18 verses of John's gospel, which are intentional to point us to the supremacy of Jesus, that he was the long-awaited Messiah who the people had been waiting for, and he sets out to show the eternality of Jesus, the the supremacy of Christ, his greatness even above John the Baptist, Um, and we're going to see this morning what we looked at on the heels of last week, which was we saw last week the rejection of Jesus by the people. Jesus came to his his own, but the Jews predominantly uh, rejected him and turned away from him. But what we see today is God is good to not only show us the rejection of Jesus by most of the people, but he doesn't leave us there. The end of the story is not the pure rejection of Christ. The end of the story is found that there are still some who believe. And I don't know about you, but it's good news that God preserves a remnant of people who will continue to worship his name. And preach the gospel. Because we today live in a world that is predominantly not Christian. They don't believe in Jesus for the most part, but we are part of that remnant that God continues to use to further his kingdom. And that's good news. So what we're going to look at is the good news off of last week. So if you survived last week, congratulations, because now you get to see after the rejection of Christ, We get to see the reception of Christ, those who did receive him. And so in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, we see this laid out for us. Before we get started, let's pray again that the Lord would just give us insight into his word. Lord, I pray that as I preach this morning, you might guide my words to only say what you want me to say. And God, I pray this morning you might show us in our hearts that we are not the glorious ones. You are, and God, you are deserving of all praise. So Lord, I pray this morning what we will see very clearly is your great love for us and God, your great grace towards us. Father, we are here this morning as Christians simply because you decided to rescue us of no merit of our own, but just because you are loving and gracious. So help us to bask in that today. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's trying to earn your love, trying to earn your forgiveness. God, I pray that you would show them very clearly that they cannot earn your love. You have already demonstrated it. You demonstrated your love by sending your son to die upon the cross. So, Lord Jesus, may we look upon your cross and see your beautiful love for humanity. We ask you, God, to give us a glimpse of your glory today that would cause us to worship you more. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 12, we see the all-important contrast. If you notice, he says in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in him. His name, he gave the right to become children of God. There are many words in the Bible that are important. There are many words in the Bible that are very significant. And one of those words is a very common word you'll find throughout the scriptures, and that word is the word but. Because anytime you see that word, you know that something is being contrasted. It's telling you that there's something different or opposed to what was earlier. 
And so what he shared in verses 10 and 11, that there were those in the world who Jesus came to, they did not know him, and his own people did not receive him. That is the truth, that when Jesus came into the world, not everyone rejoiced in his coming, but some said, we'd rather him not. We'd rather wait for another king besides this one. And that is a tragic thing to comprehend, that there would be people whom the Messiah would come and visit who would treat him as a stranger in his own home. But, right, verse 12, but changes everything. It means that there is something different. Not only were those who rejected Jesus, but, he says, to all who did receive him. So when Jesus comes into the world, humanity is now split. Those who reject him and those who receive him. And the good news of verse 12 is, oh, isn't it great that God causes some to receive him? Oh, see? Isn't it great that God causes people to receive him, that God promises throughout his word that there would be people who would trust in him throughout the generations. We see this in places like John chapter 6. If you flip over just a few pages to John chapter 6, I want to highlight a particular verse to you that's very important about verse 12. So John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus is speaking about the fact that he is the bread of life whom has come down from heaven that what manna in the wilderness meant to the Israelites, Jesus truly is spiritual food to those who are hungry. And then in John 6, verse 37, Jesus makes this outstanding statement. He says in verse 37 of John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Every person God is going to save will come to me. To Jesus. You can bank on it. If God is going to save someone, they will come to Jesus. He says so right here. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There are those who receive Jesus in every age. It is the promise of Christ. He said, the Father will give me people. The Father will save people through Jesus' sacrifice. Oh, the good news of the promise of God that in every age there will be those who do believe and receive Christ. That God is going to be victorious even in this dark world. So we don't have to lose hope. Even though you've witnessed to your neighbor a thousand times and they still don't understand. We don't give up hope because what does God promise? There will be those who receive Jesus in every age and in every generation. That word receive is the word to take hold of. And I want to show you, he, 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 he gives you several descriptors of these people. He says, but to all who did receive him, and then he describes what it means to receive him, who believed in his name. Those who receive Jesus are those who believe 
in the name of Jesus. There are those who put their faith and trust in him. Because when it says to believe in Jesus' name, it means to believe in who Jesus is. It doesn't mean just to believe a certain set of doctrines. It doesn't mean just to believe a certain set of truths. They believed in his name, which means in who Jesus is. Everything the Father said about Christ, we believe. Everything Jesus said about himself, we believe. Everything the apostles taught about their king, we believe. Those who receive Jesus are those who believe not just rules and regulations about Jesus, but they believe that he is the only savior for our sin. The only one who can redeem us. That's what it means to receive Jesus. It means to believe in his name. It means to believe everything about him. Now, what the Bible tells us, if you flip over to John 2, the Bible tells us that Jesus knows something that's very important. John chapter 2, verse 23, 24, and 25, because we're going to see this phrase, believe in his name, again. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he, meaning Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, right? Same phrase. When they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. All right, so what does this teach us? Something very important. Jesus knows the difference between shallow faith and true faith. Because in John 2, there were some who believed in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Uh-oh. Jesus knows the difference between shallow faith and true faith in who he is. Because in John chapter 2, we're told they believed in his name because of the miracles he had done. Listen, a lot of people might believe that Jesus is the miracle worker. But it doesn't necessarily mean they believe everything about who he is. There were many who followed Jesus who followed him simply because he could heal the sick and cure the lame and open the eyes of the blind. They maybe didn't believe that he was the Messiah, but they believed he was a great miracle worker. Jesus knows the difference between those who truly believe in his name and receive him and those who simply believe in superfluous things about him. Now that's either really encouraging to you or really scary. Because it means we cannot dupe God. We cannot trick God into believing us. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. And he knows whether our faith is true faith or whether it is a shallow faith based simply on what we can get out of him see the good news is the bible tells us in john chapter 1 verse 12 that all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god this receiving jesus is very very important john piper says receiving jesus means that when jesus offers himself to you you welcome him into your life for what he is 
If he comes to you as savior, you welcome his salvation. If he comes to you as leader, you welcome his leadership. If he comes to you as provider, you welcome his provision. If he comes to you as counselor, you welcome his counsel. If he comes to you as protector, you welcome his protection. If he comes to you as authority, you welcome his authority. And if he comes to you as king, you welcome his rule. That's what it means to receive Christ and believe in his name. It means however Jesus comes to us, we receive him for who he is. And oh, the beautiful news that while some are rejecting him, there are those who are believing in his name. Those who are trusting in him. It's so good to know that in this dark world we live in, there are those whom the Father is rescuing even right now. People who are placing their faith in Christ for the first time. And notice what happens. Notice how else he describes these folks who believe and receive Christ. He says he gave the right to become children of God. That not only are you able to be forgiven of your sin and my sin, but we are able to be called children of God. That orphans might be adopted into God's family. That we might actually become part of the family of God. And we're told that as many as received him and believed in his name, he, meaning God, gave the right to become children of God. We couldn't become children of God because we decided we would do so. We don't become children of God because we grab it for ourselves. We're told that we become children of God because he gave us the right to be called children. Listen, I don't get to show up to your family and claim your inheritance. I, you, I could show up to your house and say, I claim your inheritance for myself. You're going to laugh me out of your house, and you're going to show me legally why I have no right to do that. This word right, that's a legal term. That means when we're, when we're forgiven by Christ, when we're redeemed from our sin, God gives us the right, the privilege to claim to be part of the family and to receive the inheritance that children receive. We don't get it because we did it on our own. This is given to us. This is privilege without merit. This is God giving us the right to be called children of God even when we are sinners who still fail. I don't know about you, but that's good news. Because in our regular human families, in our earthly families, you might wrong a loved one and you are cut out. You are disowned. You are put away. God says to those who received him and believed in his name, he gave the privilege to be called children of God, adopted by him, never to be disowned again. That's good news because if you were to look at our lives, we deserve to be disowned. But God, because of his great love, has caused us to be children of God. To be recipients of the inheritance of Jesus. And that's not because of our merit, but despite what we deserve.
But what this tells us is that we are prone to try and earn salvation. Now, how do we do that? How do we try to earn salvation? What are ways in which we do that? Say that again. Good works, right? If I, if I help enough uh, old ladies across the street, right? If I load enough groceries into people's cars for them, right? If I help out at the clothing bank long enough, right? Those are ways. Are there any other ways we try to earn salvation from God? What's that now? Giving of yourself, okay? So self-sacrifice, if I give this up, you kind of owe me something? Not necessarily? Okay. Right, okay. So try to help. Any other ways we try to earn salvation? Church attendance. Y'all are here today because you hope God will give you a check mark in heaven, right? God can't keep you out because you showed up to this. And boy, what, a, what an endurance that was, right? To have to show up and sit next to one another for a full hour. Whoa. If you don't get heaven for this, really? Right? So church attendance. Any other ways we try to earn salvation? Yeah, well, that's the right way. That's the right way to do it. What are the wrong ways, though? Okay, so I think you guys are saying the same thing. Buy your way in. If I give enough money, then God will let me in. Which, by the way, does anybody know what that threshold is? Okay, because once you, let me know once you figure that out. Because if so, we could all just write checks right now and just be about our day. But people, we really do sometimes. Sometimes we believe that if we just serve in the church and do something... Now, we may, not be, we may not be consciously doing that at all times, but do we realize that sometimes we, we treat church as our get into heaven pass? What does this verse say? None of those things will ever cause us to receive or believe in the name of Jesus. But it's only God who gives us the right to be called children of God. We can't earn it. So that's either that one that, that tells us that, okay, we should stop trying to earn it then, right? We're wasting our time. It doesn't mean stop serving and stop showing up to church and all those things. Keep doing those things. But you do those things because you've been saved, not so that you'll be saved. So God is telling us stop trying to earn it. Why? Because he gave it through Christ for us. That if we're in Christ, if we believe in his name, if we are saved through his life, death, and resurrection, God gave us the right to be called children of God. And that's good news, considering that Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that if God didn't do that, we are by nature children of wrath. We don't deserve to be called the children of God. But oh, how good is he that he forgives us of our sin. That's a great God. Who doesn't just say, well, I'll forgive Miss Nellie of her sin because her sin wasn't as bad as everyone else's. Or, or, or Brother Don, we'll, we'll, we'll give him a pass because he wasn't as ugly as his neighbor was, right? Or, or Miss Brenda, that, oh, we'll let her in. We'll give a special, because she plays the piano so beautifully. We'll let her in. We'll give her a special exemption. Isn't it great that what God says is even if our sin is the worst of sin, he's still able to forgive us. Reminds me of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. You know, John Newton was saved and found himself involved in the slave trade. And over the course of time, he found himself to, to find that disgusting. But God didn't save John Newton because he was so great and deserving of it. John Newton 
was saved because God just demonstrated love to an amazing sinner. And we're all testifiers of that, aren't we? We're all testifiers of that. So when you sing Amazing Grace, we're singing about ourselves. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like not your neighbor, not your brother and sister, us. And that's the beauty of what God has done. We see his great love in the fact that he rescues sinners and gives us the right to be called children of God. I don't know about you, but I hope that we are thankful for that right. Because that inheritance is eternal life. That inheritance is to be with Jesus for all eternity without sin. Oh, that is a great inheritance. And it's been given to us never to be taken away again. Not only that, not only do we see God's great love in verse 12, but we see God's great grace in verse 13. He says he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see what he's saying there? That being born of God is not due to any merit or effort of our own. I want you to think about this. He gave the right to become children of God who were born. Right? This means to be reborn, right? Because we know we're born once physically. He's talking about a second birth, a, a new birth that he's going to share in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. But he says who were born, born into God's family, not of blood. Okay, in human families, we are born into families by blood, right? Physical descendancy. I'm born into my family by my mom and dad. And in the ancient world, that was viewed as a mixing of blood. And to be born was to be born of blood. But here, John tells us that to be born into God's family is different than how one is born into an earthly family because to be born into God's family and be a child of God does not come from physical descendancy. Now, who might this be written to? Who in the first century would think that they were automatically part of God's family because of who their grandma and grandpa were? Right? The Jewish people would have said, we are the descendants of... That's right, brother. They would claim we are automatically in the family of God because we are descendants of Abraham. We've been circumcised as he called us to. We follow the law. They said, we are in the family of God because of who our ancestors were. What does John say here? To be born into the family of God is not of blood. This is radical stuff. Because what he's saying is it, it's not about your physical descendancy from Abraham. It's about having the same faith as Abraham. That's where one is born into the family of God. It's not how natural families on earth are created by uh, procreation. It's not of blood. A.W. Pink, theologian, said regeneration doesn't run in the veins. We're not saved because our grandparents were saved. And I know we're sitting here going, well, we would never do that. We never, oh, yes, we do. Because I've heard people say, I'm a Christian because my grandpa was a deacon at the church. My dad was a pastor. My, 
My uncle taught Sunday school. My grandma loved Jesus. Those are all great things. But none of those things makes us part of the family of God. And we need to come to grips with the fact that we cannot, by our own nature, be children of God. God has to act to bring us into his family. He goes on, nor of the will of the flesh. There is nothing you can desire in your own flesh to cause this to happen. There is no human decision you can come around to that will cause this to happen. You're born into the family of God, not because of any will of your own, because the Bible tells us that our will, apart from God acting, is what? Naturally opposed to him. We are by nature children of wrath. And so there's no act of our will that can cause us to be part of the family of God. It is not the will of the flesh. There is no desire of man that would want to be part of the family of God. No human parents can make this happen for us. I love my family, but I can't make my children believe in Jesus. I can't make them be born into the family of God. There's no will of the flesh that can achieve this because we are marked by sin and rebellion. Our flesh is naturally against God. And that's scary because we like to think of ourselves as kind of neutral towards God until he saves us. But James chapter 4 verse 4 tells us that one who would desire to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. There is no neutral position. We're either friends of God in union with Christ or we are his enemies. And nothing of our human desire or will can cause us to be born into the family of God. He must act for us. And then finally, he says, nor of the will of man. This word can also be translated husband. But it basically points out that there's no human endeavor, there's no will of man that can cause us to be born into the family of God. John MacArthur sums these three things up this way. He says, salvation is not obtainable by any racial or ethnic heritage, which would be blood, nor any personal desire, which would be the will of the flesh, nor any man-made system. No preacher can cause this to happen in your life. I would like to think that I could preach you some really great sermons that would be filled with God's word. But there's no power in me to save you. I can't make you believe. Only God can open up a heart that is stone cold due to sin and make it alive again to love him. My hope is that as I preach the word of God to us, God will use his word to open our hearts, but I can't make that happen. Only he can. And that's where John leaves this verse. It's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but, 
Another contrasting word, right? We love the contrasting words because they tell us something opposed to what was just said. So God tells us we have no ability in our own selves to be able to become children of God. We can't be born into it physically. We can't do anything of our own desire. There's nothing other people can do for us to cause us to be in part of God's family. But one can be born of God. God can and does what human beings can't do for themselves. And that's the beauty of Jesus, is that there are those who do believe. Throughout every generation, there are those who believe in his name, who become children of God, and it's not based on anything they do. It's simply on the grace of God. He looks upon poor sinners, and he says, I'm going to rescue them. Isn't that good news? Isn't that something to be excited about? When the world around you seems to be decaying everywhere you look? When it seems like more people are running from God than to him? Isn't it good news to know that even though we are wholly unable to save ourselves, God does save people by his own hand. And Jesus will show that. He'll show that in John 3 when he talks with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, can a man enter his mother's womb to be born again? No, cannot happen by blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. One must be spiritually born again. And here's what I want you and I to really get this morning. God doesn't need our help. Okay, God doesn't need God doesn't need our help to save us. God is perfectly able to save us to the uttermost by himself. Yay! Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't call us to repent, right? We, we repent and believe. That's what he calls us to do. We are called to believe in his name. We're called to receive him. Those are active words. We do that, but we only do that because God has rescued us. It's not by my hands, and he doesn't need my help. Listen, I heard a preacher say this one time. I was sitting in a, in a, in a, a gathering of men who were together on this weekend retreat, and the pastor of a local church came, and he taught that morning, and he, he gave this illustration, and I, it took everything in me not to leap from my seat and go, you are wrong, but he gave the illustration of salvation as being this. Salvation is like cake mix. You have flour, you have oil, you have eggs, and you have water. And this pastor stood up in front of these men, many of them who were not Christians or many of them who were very new Christians, and he said, God has done everything else. All he wants you to do is add your cup of water. No, 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 no. Because if God needs my cup of water, then Jesus wasn't enough. If God needs my cup of water to add to the mix to make a cake, then Jesus did not purchase all of my redemption. I have to add to it. Listen, there is nothing 
nothing more damaging than to have us believe that Jesus is inadequate in any way to save us fully on his own. He doesn't need my cup of water. He doesn't need anything from my hands. If he wants to rescue me, he can rescue me to the uttermost because his life, death, and resurrection was absolutely enough to save me. All he does is call me not to add my water, but to believe that he's already done it all. He doesn't ask me to add to salvation. He asked me to trust him that he alone is able to do these things. And so church, I don't want us to ever walk away thinking that God needs our help to accomplish this. God is fully able to save his people to the uttermost. All he calls for us to do is to trust and believe that Jesus is that sacrifice for our sin. Are you with me? Listen, I'm not trying to be hurtful. I'm not trying to be heavy-handed. But God deserves glory because he alone is the one who rescues us. And he doesn't need anyone to help him out. He's perfectly good at doing this. He, he majors in rescuing lost souls. And the good news of God is that we don't come with any cup of water on our own. We come empty-handed and we fall before God and say, we believe in Christ and that his death is enough. I want you to notice that the one who received him is the one who believed in his name, is the one who becomes the child of God. Those are all three things that describe those who put their trust in Jesus. And there's nothing we can do to force God's hand on that. We can't earn it. We can't do enough to cause God to love us. It reminds me of the final illustration I'll make. Genesis 16 and 17 tells us the story of Abraham and his wife Sarai. Do you remember the promise God made to Sarai and Abraham? God promised that he was going to do what? He was going to provide a son of promise. And through the son that God would give to Sarai and Abram would come every nation of the world. And God, through this promised son, would make one people for himself, the people of promise, the family of God. Now, you remember, did Abraham and Sarah, did they, did they accept that fully at the beginning? No. Abraham looks at himself and his wife and says, she's old. Sarah looks at herself and says, I'm old. I can't have children. She's found laughing. Because how in the world could God promise a child through these old folks? And so they decide we've got to bail God out of this promise. And what do they decide to do? Sarah says, here is my servant, Hagar. Have a child with her. And Ishmael is born. But God says, no, 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 you don't understand. This promise wasn't for you to figure out by your own hands. This promise was I was going to give you a son where no son could be given naturally. I was going to give you a son, and I'm going to give you a son by whom the promise will come. See, Abraham and Sarah believed that they had to bail God out of this promise. They figured that we got to save ourselves. We got to do something to make this happen by our own hands. And God says, I don't need your help. I'm going to give you a son. And through him, my promise will be fulfilled. And guess what? God gave a son named Isaac. And through him, what is God teaching in those chapters? Well, he's teaching us that we can't do anything by our own hands to bring about the promise of God. God gives it 
graciously, he's calling for us to depend on him, not what we can do. And I believe that's what we see here in John chapter 1 is those who receive him, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God by his own hand, not by anything we do, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The promise is by God's hand, and there's not anything we can do, only God can produce new life in spiritually dead people. So I ask you, are you trying to earn salvation apart from God? Are you trying to earn salvation apart from Jesus? Are you trying to do something that would cause God to save you? Because in the end, what we see here in these verses is we cannot save ourselves. We are desperate people in need of God to act. And if you're here this morning, what you you need is not to do better, try harder. What you need and what I need is to trust Jesus. That's what we need. We need to fall before him as empty-handed dead people to fall before God's throne and to find salvation. Spurgeon said the goal of gospel preaching is to present men as dead before the throne of God, to lay us before God's throne and to see that there is no power in us, but we, the only power we need is in the strong one who is mighty to save. Oh, my goal for us this morning is that I would lay all of us as empty dead people before God's throne, no power of our own to do anything and rely on the strong one who is and does save people. That's what you and I need more than anything. That's what our neighbors need. That's what our families need. That's what you and I need is a daily reminder that God is powerful to save even when we don't deserve it. That's good news because it means Christians, when we blow it tomorrow and tonight, we're still in the family of God. Because it's not by our own hands. It's by the power of God to save. Oh, the good news. We celebrated this past week the burial of Billy Graham. And the one thing that stuck out to me as I watched his funeral service was how often his family proclaimed the fact of the love of God. That even when Ruth, uh, when Ruth Graham stood up and told her story about how she had had a prodigal uh, a situation in her old life when she had been divorced from her first husband. She rushed into a marriage to another man that quickly disintegrated. And I encourage you to go back and watch that testimony. You can find it on the internet. But Ruth Graham said she was so scared to go back to her parents' home. She was afraid that her father, Billy Graham, would look down upon her and say, look what you did. We warned you not to walk into that. We warned you and look what you did. She expected her mother to be disappointed and to look down upon her with scorn. And at the funeral this week, Ruth Graham stood and said, when I came home, my father was waiting for me in the the driveway, and he said, welcome home. She said, Billy Graham wasn't God. She said, but he showed me God in that moment. Oh, that I could show you this morning that no matter how deep your sin goes, no matter how ugly your path has been, no matter how sinful your life has been, the Father stands welcoming his children home because he loves so greatly and his grace is so amazing. I urge you to trust in him today. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that what we would see more than anything this morning is your beauty and your grace. 
Lord, that we would give you the praise you rightfully deserve. Because God, we cannot save ourselves. We are, we are keenly aware that there is nothing in our hands that we can do that would earn salvation. But God, we are so grateful that you gave everything freely through your son that we might be forgiven. And so Father, this morning, if there's anyone here who's trying to earn salvation, if there's anyone here trying to be good enough that you might love them, Lord, I pray that they would see that you have already demonstrated your love for us. You've already shown us that you love us and we see it in Jesus hanging on a cross. And so Jesus, I pray that you'll help us to, to glance at you and to see your perfection and your love for us even in the midst of our sin. Oh God, we cannot thank you enough for rescuing us. That you welcomed us as the prodigal returning home. And so Lord, may we celebrate your love today. May we worship you and God, may our lives be lived in honor of you. Lord, if there's anyone here trying to earn salvation, show them, God, that you have freely given everything through your son. May they trust in him, his life, death, and resurrection for them. And Lord, for us as Christians, help us to know that we walk not so that we can earn your love, but because you have already loved us. God, help us to serve, help us to minister, help us to proclaim the gospel, not so that you'll rescue us, but because you already have. Lord, let us live in the grace and the mercy that you have provided so that you might receive glory above all else. Oh, Father, I pray in this service you would rescue souls today. I pray you'll show us our desperate need for you and the beautiful love of your son Jesus for us. Lord, rescue hearts in this moment. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.